Please turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and uh, beginning in verse 17 is where we're going to be this morning. For those of you who know our family, you know that um, my wife tends to be, uh, how should I say it? She's, she's less uh, scrutinizing than I am, right? Uh, less, less critical, more, more accepting. And uh, one of the places that this shows up in uh, our married life is in our selection of coffee, right? Um, any brown water my wife will drink and celebrate and rejoice and be really happy and content with. As opposed to me, I, I tend to be uh, a lot more discriminating, right? Uh, and, and this kind of plays itself out when we go to see her family. Her family lives in Oklahoma. It's about an eight-hour drive. They live right outside of Tulsa and Broken Arrow. And as we're driving there, what we have learned over 22 years of marriage is there are, there are actually there are no coffee shops in southern Oklahoma. Really, there's like nothing. There's, you know, there's Arby's and there's McDonald's, there's an Exxon mobile station, right? There's nothing. So I have to really, I have to time things properly. So as we're driving through Dallas and we're about to reach, you know, North Dallas and we're into Plano, we're into Allen, I I have to make sure that we make a stop so that I can get a real cup of coffee, a good cup of coffee. The problem comes when sometimes I'm not really paying attention and we drive through and we're pulling into Southern Oklahoma and Tristan goes, oh, I need a cup of coffee. And I go, there's, there is no coffee here. There's nothing. You can't, you can't get a cup of coffee in Southern Oklahoma. And she goes, oh, no, just, just pull over there to the, the Shell station. I'm like, how can you do that? How can you drink that? How can you, you know, and so this conversation erupts here every time, right? How can you do that? How can you, how can you even call that coffee? Having tasted a, like a real rich espresso, what, what are you doing? What are, you know, and so we, this conversation, uh, it happens not infrequently. Right, not infrequently, and and I say that not because between services I want you to come and solve our marriage conflicts. That's 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 not what I'm talking about, right? I'm just using this as an illustration of a spiritual principle, and it's this: once you've really tasted life in Christ, joy in the midst of trials, and peace, and patience with others, and and kindness, and love and meaning, and purpose, and freedom, why would you ever go back? But the fact is this, church, we're constantly tempted to forget what life is like in Christ, and we're tempted to go back. And so what Paul does in this section is he reminds the Ephesian believers, and he reminds us what it was like before Christ. What it was like when when they were pursuing self-destructive behaviors so that he can renew their longing to know more and more of Christ, to be further transformed into the image of Christ and to know more of that joy and peace and love and purpose and kindness and patience. So he reminds them so that he can renew that longing and that joy in their lives. So I want you to read with me, beginning in chapter 4 and verse 17. Paul says this, This I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Paul says, remember, remember what it was like Without Christ. And what I want you to notice first is that there's actually a progression. 
And the progression, in a sense, grammatically, it actually begins in the middle. It begins with uh, this phrase regarding the heart. He says in verse, uh, the end of verse 18, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And what he does, he's walked through this, this progression that goes from the heart to the mind to the conscience to the behavior, beginning with the hardness of heart. And remember, in biblical terms, the heart isn't just your emotions. It's not just how you feel. The heart is the center of the person. Right? It's the center of the inner man. It's the center of the personality. So as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. As a man reasons, you reason out of your heart. You feel out of your heart. Right? You choose out of your heart. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? The heart is the center of the person. And what he's saying, the problem, where the problem begins, is there's a hardness of heart that is, there's an, an internal commitment to turn away from God. I want you to keep your place here in Ephesians and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Paul uses a similar terminology, and he really is developing a similar idea in Romans, chapter 1. Read with me in verse 21. Paul says, for even though they knew God, they did not, in fact, honor him as God or give thanks, but instead they became futile in their speculation, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever Amen. Right? The heart at the very center of the person, Paul says, what happens is they turn away from God. There's a, a, a willful turning, and the key word in Romans is they exchanged. They said no to God, and they said yes to anything but God. And then begins this downward spiral that ends in behavior that is self-destructive, but it doesn't start with behavior. It starts with this internal reorientation. I'll turn back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Do not walk any longer, just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind. The heart becomes hard, the mind becomes futile. Now, this word for futile is really interesting. It's hardly ever used in the New Testament, but it's used throughout the Old Testament. In particular, there is one book in the Old Testament, this word is used 39 times. Okay, 39 times. In fact, it is the, it's the key to understanding this particular Old Testament book. Can you guess what it is? Futility? Ecclesiastes, right? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's the Hebrew word hevel, which is translated by this Greek word matthias. It means absolute and complete emptiness. It means lots and lots of furious labor coming to nothing. Or in this case, lots and lots of furious thinking coming to nothing. In the futility of their minds, their minds become darkened. They're darkened in their understanding. That is, their capacity to actually perceive God and understand truth and what life is about. It it disappears. Now, we live in an academic community. And what do we trust in more than anything else? Science. I believe in science, right? I believe in reason. Reason is above all things. My capacity to discover truth is dependent upon my mind. You know what? The mind is morally corruptible. When the heart turns away from God, right? When the the internal man says no to God, which is a moral choice, the mind's capacity to discern truth and the purpose of life diminishes and diminishes 
and diminishes. And so you can discover brilliant people, brilliant people, who reject, as it says in Romans 1, what is right in front of their faces. Because there is evidence for God in all of creation. Something exists, not nothing. Where did it come from? And that something that exists is, reflects so much intelligence and design. How can you believe there is no God? Or that God is not active in this world? And yet, the mind becomes morally corruptible. It cannot discern what God is speaking about himself. Then the conscience becomes seared. Verse 18 They become darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is willful ignorance in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and then they become callous. That is, they no longer are sensitive to pain. Good good pain. They're not sensitive to the kind of pain that teaches. I've told you about my grandfather before. Remember, he was a a blue-collar man. He was a hard-working man. And I remember as a child, his hands were just, they were so rough. It was like he had leather gloves on when he would, when he would touch my face. It was just scratchy and rough. And just deep grooves throughout his hand. And I remember one time watching him uh, take his fingers and, and lick them and reach up then and touch an electrical wire just to see if there was current coming through. Right? And then he'd look at me and go, yeah, yeah, I, I feel something. <laughs> it's amazing. Can I try, Grandpa? No. It'll kill you. But he, he doesn't even feel it. He barely felt it. What happens when the, the internal man orients itself away from God and then the mind can no longer reason, then we become callous in heart. That is, we don't feel shame and guilt for things that we should feel shame and guilt for. And then we pursue behaviors that are more and more destructive. They, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness, right? Behaviors become habits, and then habits become commitments. They gave themselves over. They said, yes, that's life for me. It's life for me. And the word for sensuality means to be without boundaries, unconstrained. There's there's nothing that we won't do. I want you to notice also one other word. It's greediness. And we're going to come back to this word. But it's another very colorful word in Greek. It means literally to have more. The boundaries are broken down. And life is about constantly having more of that. Have you ever noticed at um, Spoons Yogurts that they only give you one size containers? (laughs) It's huge. Have you ever noticed that? You You can't go and say, I'd like the smaller one. No, this is it. Right? And then having that large container, I've never seen anyone fill it less than halfway, ever. Right? I'm, a, I'm a student of human behavior, so I stand back and I watch these things. Nobody ever fills it less than half. And if you've got kids with you, right, you turn, your, turn around and you look back and it's, you know, it's this massive pile. It's huge and it's got all kinds of the, those toppings. Right? It's like a $12 frozen yogurt thing. And you know, no human should consume it, let alone a tiny little body like this. I mean, it's, it's stunning, right? So just one time what I'd like to do is I'd like to take a sample cup and put it on the scale. I'm say, that's all I want. Just that, I just want that. I couldn't do it because I'm greedy. Right? I want, I want the big cup, too. It means to have more. Paul says, remember how destructive that is in your life. I want to remind us where we are in the flow of thought in this book. Paul has said this. You are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. 
How? By grace through faith. Grace meaning you you don't deserve to be reconciled to God. There's nothing that that merits the relationship. But God in his kindness, he reaches down and he chases after you and he, he demonstrates the truth of Jesus Christ, that he died for you, that he was buried for you, that he rose from the dead for you, that his death removes the debt of your sin. And it's just a gift. Reach out and take it by faith. Receive it. Just say, God, thank you. Thank you for, for giving me life that lasts forever. That's, that reconciles you to God. You're put in right relationship with God. And once that relationship is put right with God, then relationships can be put right with other people because you realize you know, we're, we're all sinners humbled before the cross. Really, there's no distinction between us. We might say, well, I'm a little bit morally better than you because I don't do this, but oh yeah, I do this, right? So there's really nothing that really separates us, and certainly not uh, race or, or gender or age or socioeconomic status. He says, in fact, what happens is we're all one in Christ. We become reconciled to one another because we're reconciled the same way to God. And now we are, in fact, one in Christ. And what is that distinguishing characteristic of each of us individually and then us corporately? We looked at this last week. It's love. Paul says, this is how all men will know that you're my disciples. Because you have love for one another. I've reconciled you to myself, and I've reconciled you to one another, so that I can hold you up before all the hosts of heaven, and I can hold you up before all of the watching world, and the world can say, wow, that's really different. And the thing that makes you completely and utterly different is the way that you demonstrate love for one another. In other words, the distinguishing characteristic of us is not what we know, but who we love. Get that? The distinguishing characteristic of us is not what we know, but who we love. I'm not saying that knowledge is not important because knowledge teaches us what we should love, but knowledge is not love. What sets us apart from the world's eyes is not what we know, but who we love. And where does that love come from? Well, it comes from God. We love because he first loved us. Because he poured out his love upon us, we we understand, okay, that's what love is like. Love isn't something that takes and takes and takes. Love is something that gives and gives and gives. And we begin to reciprocate our love toward God in just a small way. And then we learn how to reciprocate love toward the people around us. And the world looks in they go, that's really different. Because all that the world does is it takes and it takes and it takes. And what sets us apart from the world is what we love. A disciple of Jesus is just a person who loves what really matters. And what's lasting in life. I read a really interesting book this last year. It's called You Are What You Love by James Smith. You are what you love. And in it he said this. To be human is to have a heart. You can't not love. So the question isn't whether you will love something as ultimate. The question is what you will love as ultimate. And you are what you love. Discipleship is then a rehabituation of our loves. We struggle not because our intellect has been hijacked first by bad ideas, but because our desires have been captivated by rival visions of what life is really all about. You see what he's saying is? When we move away from God, it's not because beginning it begins with some idea that captivates our minds and we begin to doubt. It, it moves away from God because we have this this uh, vision of what life is really all about, and we believe it, and we fall in love with it. Right? It starts with, in a sense, our, our affections become distorted. And church, I want to remind us that, that we are at risk. The book of Ephesians is a book that's written to the church. 
It's not, it's not a book that's written to the non-believing world. It's, it's a book written to the church. Church, we are at risk of having our affections pulled away from Jesus Christ. And when that happens, it will eventually destroy our lives. Have you ever had a, a, a friend, Christian friend, who it appears they just start making just terrible decisions? You ever lived through that? Just destructive life decisions, and they move further and further and further away from God. Have you ever experienced that? Uh, if you haven't, you probably will, sadly. And for a lot of us, we see that, and, and immediately we want to say to ourselves, well, they're probably just we're never a Christian, because we like to put things in nice little neat categories in life. But you know, that's, that's not necessarily the case. How does a person become a Christian? You, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and God saves you. It's an act of God, and God, having saved that person, they belong to that person. That person belongs to God forever. They're secure because He's a good heavenly Father. And then, having believed and being secure in Jesus Christ, the battle for the heart is on. And the world and the flesh and devil are battling and warring against the Spirit for our affections. What do we love? Because. We love what we worship, and we worship what we love, and we become that which we worship. Wherever we set our hearts is going to transform us into its image. And so having become a believer, there is going to be this battle on for your affections, for what you truly and genuinely love. Let me give you an illustration. Solomon, king of Israel. You think you're going to see Solomon in heaven? Not if you evaluate Solomon by his lifestyle. Right? But Solomon wrote three books of the Bible. I, I think he probably will be in heaven. I'm really confident, actually, he will be in heaven. But if you evaluate Solomon based upon his lifestyle, you'd say, how in the world? Right? Because how did Solomon uh, live out the end of his life? Well, he uh, struggled with uh, alcoholism. He was a, a drunker. Drunkard. He was a, a sexual addict. He was addicted to material things and money. He just collected and collected and collected. But for all those things, they're nothing compared to his idolatry. He set up uh, idolatrous stations throughout the temple of God, and he worshipped them. He worshipped them. How did he get to that point? Well, the writer of the book of Kings tells us, he says, he married all of these foreign wives against God's command, and they turned his heart away. Right? They influenced his affections. His affections were changed. And his life ended in destruction, and he was a terrible father, and he passed on the kingdom to a foolish son who divided the kingdom, and both were eventually taken away into exile. It's about our affections. And church, I want to remind us that we're vulnerable. We're vulnerable to having our hearts pulled away after foolish things. Remember when we introduced the book of Ephesians and said this is actually not the only letter written to the church of Ephesus? Jesus wrote a letter to the church of Ephesus. Short letter in the book of Revelation. And he wrote actually seven letters to seven churches. And in the letter to the Ephesian believers, he commends them for so many things, right? He says, you do these things so well. But then he says, I just have this, this one thing against you. You've left your first love. You're on, you're on a pathway. Because your heart doesn't love me more than it loves everything else. And where is the church in Ephesus today? Well, it's nowhere, right? The church in Turkey and Asia Minor, it's gone. Um, Why? Well, this is certainly a contributing factor. You've left your first love. 
So church, I want to ask you, why, why are we at risk? Why is it that we, why don't we, we, we become Christians and then we're safe, we're secure, we're never at risk of having our hearts pulled away? I would say this, it, it's just because we are easily deceived. Or we don't want to think of ourselves that way, right? But we are. We're, we are easily tricked. There's just something about fallen human nature that we, we give in to various lies. Uh, let me illustrate that point for you. Any of you get uh, email scam emails all the time? I get them, like I get four, five, six every week. They, it's, for some reason, most of them don't get filtered out. Uh, a lot of them, they, they look something like this. Right? This is, this is a, a similar one to one that I received. The message uh, might meet you in utmost surprise. Yeah, I am. I'm shocked. Here's another one, right? Uh, however, it's just my urgent need for a foreign partner that made me to contact you for this transaction. I got your contact from Yahoo Tourist Search. While I was searching for a foreign partner, I assured your capability and reliability to champion this business opportunity. When I prayed about you, well, there you go, it's the will of God. Right? So I must write him back because what he's saying is they, have, they just have $12.5 million left over. And so, you know, all you, just send these, these items, these personal items, and there you go. You got it, right? And here's another one. I didn't actually receive this, but I, I loved it, so I just thought it'd be fun to share this morning, right? Dear friend, my name is John Kelly. I'm a 59-year-old man. I'm in a hospital in Dubai. Recently, my doctor told me that I would not last for the next six months due to my cancer problem, cancer of the lever. You don't want that kind, right? I'm I'm giving my money away because of my health condition and the fact that my second wife is a terrifying woman to deal with. (laughs) Marrying her was the only mistake I made in my life. She's currently managing my company here, but I know what she's capable of. She has sold her soul to the devil. And I do not want her to come near my money. Regards, John Kelly. It's like, that's awesome, right? Now, you have to ask the question, why do these emails continue to go out? It's because some people respond. They work. And you say to yourself, no, 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 but those, those don't work on me. Right? I, I, wouldn't, I, would, I can't be scammed. I'm, I'm above that. I can't be deceived. Not me. I'm immune to that. I cannot be tricked. Right? Do you, do you buy bottled water? But Brian, it's from an artesian well. Triple filtered, bottled by elves. It's amazing, right? I, you ever bought a, a warranty on an electronic device? Scammed. I'm telling you, right? Cost of the warranty is more than the cost of the average repair. You're, you're scammed. You ever buy a $3 cup of coffee? I didn't even talk about that. Scammed, right? My wife knows better. We're vulnerable to deceit. That's part of broken, fallen, sinful nature. And the first lie that we are tricked by is this. Man can live without God. Man can live without God. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, uh, God is evident. He's evident in creation. He's also evident within them in conscience. He's evident. But they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They suppress it. Because they believe the lie that they can, in fact, live without God. And Paul says here in Ephesians 4, no, instead what happens is they're alienated or separated from the life of God because only God has life in himself. And he alone dwells in unapproachable light and has immortality, incorruptibility, life that endures throughout the past and into the future. Only God has, has genuine life in himself. And you want to actually experience life, you have to be with God. Right? Anything that you do that's apart from God, being infused in it and being in control of it is not life. 
Man cannot live without God. Ravi Zacharias wrote a a little book called Can Man Live Without God? And he said this, when man lives apart from God, chaos is the norm. Life becomes unraveled. Let me read to you what it looks like from Galatians chapter 5. Now the deeds of the flesh, that is life without God, Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident. They are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and all sorts of other things like these. That is, life does not work without God. But we believe that lie from time to time. We don't include God in our decisions. Uh, A simple way that I do that in my own life is I show up at the office and I begin to prepare a sermon and I haven't prayed at all. Seriously, sorry, I confess. I just start thinking. And I just start studying. And I forget that this is actually not intended to be an intellectual exercise. But a moment of spiritual transformation over which I have no power at all. I have absolutely nothing to say that transforms a life. And then I, I, I shake it off and I go, whoa, 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 whoa. That's, not, that's not true and that's not who I want to be. Let me get on my knees before God and say, God, please forgive me. And now, give words that are inspired by your spirit so that your spirit can speak to your people because they're your people and it's your spirit and it's your church. Now, do your work. But that's just a little moment where I forget and I believe the lie that man can do something and live without God, right? That's the first lie. Second lie is what God gives is not enough. What God gives is not enough. Look at Ephesians 4 again. Verse 19, notice the phrase here. He says, for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Okay, here we are, back to that word, greediness. To have more. Greed or covetousness in the New Testament means literally to have more. Paul will say in the book of Colossians, verse 5, chapter 3, Therefore put to death the members of your earthly body to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. Why? Because greed is idolatry. You see the connection? He's saying to have more, that is, I need more of this or I need something other than what God has given me in my life. I've just created an idol. I've just believed that I can find life outside of God. I believe lie number one. And so I'm tricked. And Ezekiel talks about this. He talks about the, the idols of a heart. These are the idols of your heart, right? You think idols and you go, well, that's not me. I'm not an idolater. I have no statues in my house and I don't burn incense to any of these things, whether they're small or large. I'm not an idolater. But really what's most important is the idols of the heart. Martin Luther describes them like this. He says, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. Catch that? Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your guard, your, your God. And Calvin would write, the human heart is an idol factory. And we're just, our hearts are constantly looking for something to cling to and say, I can find life there, I can find life there, I can find life there. What God has given is not enough. The human heart is an idol factory. So we have greed, so we want more. It's more, more possessions, or we want a person or we want prestige, we want pleasure, power over other people. We want all of these things. That's, that's, he says, that's idolatry, right? Because what we're talking about today is very simple. We're talking about just a matter of the heart. We're talking about worship. You love what you worship, and you worship what you love, and what you worship is what you become. We're talking about the affections of the heart. 
Now, let me read you a quote. This is from um, a man who is not a believer in Jesus Christ. His name is David Foster Wallace. He doesn't follow Christ, but he understands this principle. So he wrote this. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or Wiccan Mother Goddess or Four Noble Truths or some set of ethical principles. Remember, he's not a believer. But he's saying the reason that you should choose something spiritual is this. Because pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if, there are, if that is where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel that you have enough, ever. It's the truth. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you, then you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the ground. If you worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep, their fear, keep that fear at bay. If you worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid or fraud, always on the verge of being found out. He says, look, this is a non-Christian guy. He says, look, you're going to worship something, but you better actually worship something that will give you life, because all these other things that you worship, they will give you death. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, remember, don't go back. That is not where life is found. And the problem for us is this. We, we live in this, this greed-saturated, idolatrous culture, and we become desensitized to it. We don't, even, we don't even see it, right? It's just the water that we swim in, and it doesn't feel wet to us anymore. Were, were any of you surprised? I'm, I'm sure that most of you uh, uh, saw the news story about Harvey Weinstein. You know, the, the Hollywood mogul started uh, Miramax. He's, he's responsible for you know, hundreds of really famous films. He's one of the most powerful men in Hollywood, and it comes out that he was abusing his power, and he was using it to uh, exploit young women. Were we surprised? Nah. Nah. We, we know that's Hollywood, and we know that kind of thing happens all the time. Not really shocked anymore. In fact, that story will fade in a little bit, and then we'll hear another one. We'll go, yeah, it's just kind of more of the same, right? We're not shocked. We're not stunned. And here's the real danger. The real danger is we begin to see idolatry in our own lives, and it doesn't shock us. Maybe we see it out there, and we go, yeah, yeah, whatever, but, but when you see it in your own heart. So I want to challenge you this morning, what do you, what do you really love? Or is there something in your life that you say, you know, it's not just that I want more of that, I, I do want more of that, but really, if I don't get more of that, I'm not sure that life really can be all that life was designed to be if I don't have that. I have to have more of that. That's greed. Paul says that's idolatry. I've got to have more of that. So in a sense, I want to challenge you to do a little self-examination and say, what do I long for? What defines life for me? What do, I, what do I really, really love? And if I don't have it, I know I can continue, but I really won't experience all that life has for me. Those, those things are insidious, and they just kind of slowly creep into our hearts. And they pull our affections away from God. They're just little loves. Oh, my... Uh, Favorite Christmas movie, if I can illustrate for you, is A Christmas Story. Um, seen it tons of times. And uh, if you are also a fan, you know at the very end of the movie, Ralphie is an adult now and he's narrating it. 
Uh, he's narrating his childhood life as an adult. And he says at the very end of the movie, he says, all was right with the world. All was right with the world. But if you watch the movie, all wasn't right with the world at all. I mean, he comes from a jacked up family, right? His dad is, he's sitting at the table with the paper up and he's cussing and cursing and kicking things. I mean, he's just a foul mouth guy. He, he, wins a, a, he wins a prize, right? It's an electric leg lamp and he's just in awe. I mean, th- this is what the father loves most. I mean, it's just a weird, crazy family. You know, and then terrible thing happens. Their turkey gets eaten by a pack of wild dogs that run through the house. I mean, it's just, it's rough. I mean, go through the whole story. It's, but, but at the end, he's, Ralphie says, all was right with the world. Why? Because they show him he's fallen asleep with his Red Ryder BB gun. Because a Red Ryder BB gun had become his vision of life. This is what, this is what life is. Now, my kids hate it. Right? They're like, Dad, can you just watch the movie? I, go, I just can't. I got to analyze that movie. Right, this, is a, this is a movie, and the theme of greed or idolatry permeates the entire movie. Got to have more. And here's what's wrong. Even as believers, our hearts become too easily satisfied with lesser small gods that in the end, if we chase after them, they will destroy us. And so Paul says first, remember this. Right? Remember this. Once you've tasted Christ, why would you ever want to go back to that? Now, he turns a corner. Verse 20. It says, But you did not learn Christ in this way. Since indeed you have heard of him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old man, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now, there's a great deal of discussion. Is Paul saying that, in fact, we already have put off the old man and we have put on the new man or that we should put off the old man and we should put on the new man? If you look at the parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3, Paul says really clearly, he says, do not lie to one another one another, since you laid aside the old man with its evil practices and you have put on the new man. Since this is a fact, the moment that you believed in Jesus Christ, your identity was changed. In Pauline terms, you're no longer in Adam. You're not dead in Adam. Instead, you're alive in Christ. You have put off that old man. This is a, it's a status change. It's beautifully illustrated, actually, in uh, the book of Zechariah. Joshua, the high priest, is standing uh, before the hosts of heaven And Satan is there, and he's hurling accusations at Joshua because he's dressed in these filthy rags. And so the Lord says, now, clean him up. right? And they take off the dirty old garments that he has, and they put on a fresh robe and a fresh turban. And now Joshua is in right standing before God. right? It's a fact. He has put off the old, and now God has put on the new. He is right before God. Romans chapter 6, Paul says the same thing. He says, knowing this, that our old man was in fact crucified with him. Your status, your identity has been changed. That's part of the beauty of the gospel. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were dead in Adam. You believe now you are alive in Christ. In God's sight, he looks at you in Christ, and you are the righteousness of God in him. You are different. You are a new creature in Christ. Therefore, we consider no man as he was. We look at him in Christ. Status has changed. That's true. But Paul says now there's an effect of the gospel, and that is 
that you need to continually, every day, take off those old garments. Don't, don't live that way any longer. Why? Because you don't have to. Because you are a new person in Christ. Therefore, live like that new person in Christ. Look at chapter 4, verse 22. He says, In reference to your former manner of life, lay aside the old man, which is being corrupted continually in accordance with the lust of deceits, and instead that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man. The same thing happens, actually, if you go back to Zechariah again. Joshua is clothed with new garments. He gets a new turban on his head, and then he's exhorted. Now, live consistently with these new garments that you have. This is a fact of your identity. Now live it out. Live consistent. Now, you may not know this, but every husband in this room has experienced this practically. Okay, Let me explain. Every husband has already lived through this, what this means. This theological principle, you have lived it out if you're a husband. When you get married, you and your wife come together and you, you find a home together and you bring all of your stuff She brings her stuff, and you bring your stuff, and and you move in together, and then she begins throwing away your stuff. Right? Right? You know, she throws away your stuff, right? 90% of your wardrobe is gone. She says, you know, you you can't wear, you cannot wear that shirt any longer. You can't, because you belong to me, you represent me, you are my husband, people know that, so you can't wear that shirt. And you say, well, but I love, this is my favorite Bubba Gump tank top shirt, and, and I love this shirt, and, you know, I found it in, in a thrift store. I, I have to keep the shirt. So you cannot keep that shirt because it doesn't represent me appropriately, and you belong to me. So, but I wear this shirt every Saturday when I, when I sit in my chair and I watch football, and she goes, well, about the chair. <laughs> you can't, you cannot keep that chair, but I love that chair. It's, it's, it's genuine fake leather, and I can store snacks beside it. No, the chair doesn't represent our family. You cannot have that family. She said, and by the way, you need to get a haircut. Well, but I, but I want a mullet. I like my mullet. I look, I, look, I look like a professional baseball player. I'm a pitcher. I look like a pitcher. And she goes, but you're not a professional pitcher. You're my husband, and so you're going to get your haircut, right? So everything changes, right? Legally, in the eyes of the state... In the world, the moment you said, I do, your status changed, but then you actually start living together, and then everything really changes, right? Practically now, live out who you are. Why? Because you can. You can. So why would you live differently? Romans chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says this, Therefore, Therefore, points us back to what he has just said at the beginning of chapter 6, which is this. You are now in Christ. That's just a fact. You are in Christ. And you will now always be in Christ. That means you, don't, you no longer have to say yes to sin. You can say yes to righteousness. You can. You do have that power. You do have that choice. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of, right, of unrighteousness. But instead... Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments or literally weapons of righteousness to God. Because you are in Christ, you now have the power to make a choice to live as a weapon of righteousness. So stop presenting yourself. Stop putting on those old garments. But put on the new garments. Let's read Colossians 3 again. He says this, Therefore, put to death 
Because the old man has been put off and the new man has been put on factually, therefore, every single moment of every day put to death the members of your earthly body to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. Because greed's idolatry. These are the things that pull your heart away. Therefore, Paul is saying this. Live consistently with who you are. And the question is this. How do you do it? Right? Okay, great, Brian. That's awesome information. Now, how do I practically, consistently live out this new identity in Jesus Christ? Well, I'm going to argue that it begins with your mind. We can't, we can't cover this entire topic of sanctification, but I'm, I want to boil it down to a couple simple principles. And it's, the first one is this. It just begins with your mind. Right, you can't actually directly control your emotions. Emotions just kind of happen to you. But you can directly control what you put your mind on. And God promises, as you put your mind continuously and consistently on truth, it can transform your affections. And when your affections are transformed, then your conscience and your mind become more and more healed, and your behavior begins to line up with who you actually are. It doesn't happen immediately. We'd like it to. We'd like it to, but it doesn't. But it begins with your mind. Okay? As Paul says, it begins with the, the renewal of your mind. So let me give you uh, two ideas this morning, practical applications. The first is this. Make no provision for your heart to return. Make no provision for your heart to return. What I'm talking about is, is disrupting the patterns of your life as they are now. And I'm going to guarantee that probably every single one of us needs to disrupt some pattern in our life right now where we are feeding our mind on the things of the world. Got to give you some some data this morning, right? So uh, here's your your, uh, data moment for the morning. Uh, Millennials, which is probably 50% of our audience here, that's 18 to 34. If you're 18 to 34, you're still considered a millennial. Uh, You spend six hours per week on social media, on average in the United States, six hours per week. Now, if you are a Gen X, that's 35 to 49, you hear that statistic and you go, oh my gosh, they need to get off, they need to get off social media. They need to, it's just, you know, it's corrupting. Now, here's the thing. Uh, if you're Gen X, you spend seven hours a week on social media. Oops, right? So my point is this, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, Right? You spend seven hours a week on average. Now, if you add in social media and messaging, the average American spends more than two hours a day on those two things combined. Five hours a day on mobile apps. Did you get that? Five hours a day on mobile apps, looking at the phone. So if you combine your time on social media and mobile apps, you know, and your, your Snapchat time and the videos that you look at online or the hunting magazine that you have to read cover to cover, or People magazine that you do, okay, all of those things, many of which may be morally neutral, but none of which can transform your heart and make you more like Jesus Christ. They can't. Even, even the things that you consume that are morally neutral, they cannot transform the mind and make you more like Jesus Christ. And so what I'm talking about is maybe a disruption Okay, a disruption of habits, right? Because our mind loves habits. The brain loves habits because the brain loves to be lazy and just do the things we've always done. And so we get in these patterns. There's a trigger. There's a cue. Uh, I'm tired. It's the end of the night or it's just after a meal 
or I just woke up and I reach for something and I fill my mind, right? Then the routine kicks in. There's a cue or a trigger. There's a routine and then there's a reward, a sense of satisfaction. I got something out of that. I hit delete on my emails. Delete, 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 right? Or I went down and I hit like, 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 boom, 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 you know, and your brain fires off. There's a reward, right? And what I'm talking about is simply this. We've got to disrupt the patterns. Now, you can't just stop every bad habit. What you have to do is you have to replace it with something else, right? So that's principle two. Make room for the Spirit. Make, make room. It's, again, you can't just stop these things that you were doing without putting something in their place. So, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is not all of the spiritual life, but this is a starting place. Notice, this is an imperative. It's a command. That is, there is something that you can respond to. There's something that you can do. Do not be conformed, or as Philip's Philip's translation used to say, do not be squeezed into the world's mold. But instead, be transformed. So it's an imperative, it's a command, something you can do. But notice it's also passive. It's something actually that God does to you that you can't do to yourself. You can't transform your own mind, but you can make yourself available and accessible to the Spirit of God so the Spirit of God can transform your mind. So what I'm talking about is making room in your life for the Spirit of God, becoming accessible to the Spirit of God. Ephesians 4, Paul says the exact same thing. Verse 23, he says, Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Be transformed in the spirit of your mind. What I'm talking about is just a new habit of meditation upon truth. Colossians 3, Paul says this, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Fixate your attention. You have control over that. You can't maybe immediately transform your affections, but you can transform what you set your mind on. As he says in Philippians 4, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, okay, we get the point, Paul, dwell on these things. Right? Think on these things. Meditate upon these things. Let these things bathe your mind constantly. So what's the application? Well, let me give you uh, a specific application. You can't begin 12 new habits today. So let's do one. I'm going to encourage you to, to do one new habit, and I'm going to encourage you to do it for ne- the next 30 days. And I probably will ask. I might ask. I will ask. 30 days, one new habit. Psalm 119 says this. Your word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. God gives you a promise. Not that if you meditate upon Scripture, all problems in your life are just going to immediately evaporate, but this, that if you treasure God's Word and you fix your attention on God's Word, it has a transformative power. Transforming power. And you may say to yourself, you know, that's just just overly simplistic. Give, Give me something else. Or give me a longer list. You remember the story of uh, Naaman? In 2 Kings chapter 5, Naaman was the captain of the Aramean army. And he came down with leprosy and he heard about Elisha. He's a prophet and the prophet can do miracles. So he sent a letter to Israel. Elisha hears about it and he writes back and he says, You know, just Naaman, just go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times. You remember Naaman's response? He's furious. He's so ticked off. He goes, I expected that the man of God would come to me 
And he would do these gyrations spiritually. He would cry out and call upon the name of the Lord. And then he'd wave his hands over me. He would pronounce things and I would be healed. And it would be an amazing and miraculous and beautiful thing. He says, I've got rivers here in Damascus. I can just jump in those. And they're a lot better than the river in Jordan. And he goes away and he's furious. And then his servants come to him and they say, Master, look, if he had said to you, do something really hard, you would say, okay, I'll do it. But he said, he said, he said just, just go wash. Master, just try it. Yeah, that's my word to you. It may sound simple, but God's word comes with promise. That it's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's powerful, it's like a hammer. It breaks down barriers in our hearts and our minds. This is a really good place to start. So this is, this is the application. I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 3. In verse 1, there are three verses, verses 1 through 3. And what I want you to do with these verses, I want you to write them out on a 3 by 5 card. Let's read them real quick. Paul says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, which you have, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth, because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I want you to, to write that out. Uh, three by five card. Make multiple copies. Keep one in your pocket or one in your purse. And this is what I want you to do. When that, that, that cue comes, that trigger comes, and you start to reach to check your email, or you go to your computer, you're going to check your email real quick, or you're just going to flip on TV and you're going to check the news. You're going to reach for something else. All I want you to do for the next 30 days is reach for that card and read it. Just take 30 seconds, a minute, read it, think about it, meditate upon it. I'm not saying... Get off all digital information. Get off all. You're not going to. We live in this digital wor- world. It is saturated in your life. So I'm not saying stop. I'm not saying, hey, go on a fast for 30 days and, and leave the world digitally. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying is when that moment comes and your mind says, let me go here, go to God's word first. Okay? And meditate. And, and just begin to record how often do I go there? Right? How often do I, do I turn and fill my mind? Maybe even with stuff that it's morally neutral, right? But it's not transformative. But instead, now, where am I going first? I'm going first is to the word of God, which has the power, by promise from God, to transform my mind, which can change my affections, the things that I love, which will change my behavior and the way that I interact with the world. Just test God. 30 days. Father, I thank you that you have given us your word. And I pray that it would not be like an unwrapped package sitting on the counter, but instead it would be something that we dive deeply into, that we would uh, make a move uh, this month to just make a small change, to disrupt the old habits, and to begin to allow your spirit to have access to our minds. And Father, I pray that what we would experience is a transformation of our affections, the things that we love. I pray, Father, that you would teach us to love the things that really matter. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week, and uh, don't forget, I will be checking.